You're listening to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast with your hosts, Jack Almer, Sal LaDuca, and Peter LaDuca. BLTR is the place where right meets left, brain meets body, and where we square up everything else in between. Come on a journey with us with the stories of athletes, coaches, scouts, and trainers who will inspire and motivate you to unleash your fullest potential. Follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review. Welcome to Bats Left Throws Right. I'm your host, Jack Almer, along with the great father-son duo of Sal and Peter Loduca. We've got a very inspirational story for you guys today. It's pitcher Tate Gillespie talking about his journey to professional baseball started at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and now just this year signing his first pro contract. But it's been quite the journey for Tate to get to that point. Peter, why don't you fill them in on what Tate's been through in order to get to fulfilling his dream of being a pro baseball player? Tate's story really resonates with mine. I didn't go through what he went through. I'm a cancer survivor, so I had to go through chemotherapy. But uh, Tate had to go through a lot of surgeries and procedures. But the one thing that I can relate to him is overcoming adversity, you know, and all the setbacks that we had to face. It took us every ounce of our being and we had to work 50, 60, 70 times harder than the, the average or, or the, the talented baseball player to get to where we wanted to get to. And for Tate to be able to overcome all that adversity and now perform on a professional level overseas is just unbelievable. And, you know, I tell a lot of people that I can count on, on my hand how many people I would run through a wall for. And uh, Tate is one of those people that I would run through a wall for. I mean, his story, the, the way he bounced back and how grateful that he for, that he's in to be in the position that he's in today is just inspirational in itself. So um, I'm, I'm very excited for Tate to tell his story, and I don't want to give away too much. So you have to listen in to the rest of the, the episode for that. Absolutely. And, you know, Tate, I know you don't want to give too much away, but really his perseverance was just incredible in order to, you know, achieve what he has. Sal, what was it that struck you about the makeup of Tate at, just as a human being that was able to drive him to succeed despite what was against him? Well, you know, there's an old adage that people say, uh, many people who inspire us, they're ordinary people who do extraordinary things. You know, and what I like about athletes is because athletes are extraordinary people in the first place. You know, they're born with some, some gifts, some great DNA, and the ones who, who persevere and, and work those gifts you know, usually are, are, they arrive at the success. And there are many things that go into that. But in this case, I think it's more of like, you have an extraordinary person who did an extraordinary thing in that he had almost three times setbacks in his health. I mean, here's a guy who was like pitching at a level and he's, he's he was getting recruited by, by all. He's looked at by all the scouts. I mean, this guy is like prospect number one. And then he gets his, you know, first uh, injury, a concussion that, first of all, could have ended his life. Forget about his sport, his athletic uh, career. And that was like a big hurdle to, you know, he didn't even know if he would be able to, to survive that. 
So in any event, and then he gets another couple of injuries that keeps putting him back. But the perseverance is like, like off the charts. And the, the, the love of this game is what's really inspiring because, you know, he's going to, he's going to push forward for as long as it takes. And as long as he feels that he needs to take it where he feels it needs to go. And so, you know what, he has a separate journey. Each of us has a unique journey. And I think that he'll find he's smart enough. He's been through enough. He will determine what are the best opportunities. He will determine what are the best paths for him to take. And he can rely, you know, he can on all that he's been through. He can rely on, on all of his instincts, all of his knowledge, he can rely on a lot of that stuff to make the right decisions and for the rest of his life, really. Absolutely. And we're going to be really excited to watch the rest of Tate's baseball journey as he continues his pro career. But without further ado, we're going to get to the story behind how he got to where he is now and bring on Tate Gillespie. So here he is. Hey, Tate, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Are you, you're still in Austin, Texas? I'm in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. So Corpus Corpus Christi. Christi. Mm -hmm. I played at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So I've been down here doing my whole off season training down here for a while now. Nice. nice. Awesome. And now I have to ask, I checked out your Twitter and Mm -hmm. your banner photo there. One of the classiest images I think I've ever seen dressed (laughs) up with the wine cell in the back. Where was that taken? That was here in uh, Corpus Christi. Actually, that was at a, uh, restaurant down on the water it was really nice little anniversary dinner so had to go somewhere. how has it been with you know texas has had some issues with the with the weather and all of the how is it going for you i mean did you did you weather that storm we got we, we got through it but uh, you know we definitely went through it there we were i think four days without power really uh, probably four or five days without clean water um so Wow. And the the thing about it was kind of like all of Texas, but especially Corpus being down, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, right on the beach, they prepared for cold weather at all. So everything just collapsed. And I always tell people like everyone was posting all the fun pictures of playing in the snow and everything. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't get any snow. We just got the ice in the, the cold weather. <laughs> we didn't get an ounce of snow. We just woke up to the streets being icy and it was about five degrees with the wind chill. So not an enjoyable week, but so, uh, hey, you never experienced anything like that before in Texas, right? In Texas, no, but um, I grew up a lot of my life in the Midwest. So I kind of, I, I was kind of born and raised around it a little bit. But okay. There was a lot of people here that just had never really gone through the cold weather before. So kind of a big wake up call for a lot of people. Y- your, your life, you've been through some stuff. Right. Like, so I don't know if this compares, obviously not, but I mean, so you're, I mean, anytime you're talking about a situation with no clean water, you know, I I think that's, that's really up there. The stores, (laughs) the stores were, I told people it looked just like the start of quarantine, you know, at this time last year, like you couldn't get any meat, you couldn't get anything. So I was living on, you know, I take, like the nutrition side very seriously like training so i was freaking out like how how am i gonna hit 
you know, X amount of calories, the protein. I was just living on the tuna packets <laughs> right. at room temp. <laughs> it was awful. Oh, man. You bring up a good point, though, Tate. I mean, we have you on kind of at the anniversary of when mm-hmm. this whole pandemic started, for better or worse. How has the last year been for you adjusting to this new quarantine life? No, I, I think I had kind of a unique experience with the start of it because I had shoulder labrum surgery on March 16th. So right as it hit is when I had my labrum surgery. So while everyone else was kind of, you know, everyone kind of went through that first little week or two of quarantine where it was like, Oh, this is fun. I'm just going to sit and watch Netflix all day and we'll be out of this soon. (laughs) I was just on every painkiller. You can imagine my arm was in a sling trying to do rehab. So that was a tough part. And then, you know, trying to figure out the physical therapy side was really tough because a lot of those places closed. Closed. They were deemed, you know, non-essential. So a lot of places, I got set up with two or three places in Austin to do my physical therapy at. It all got boom, 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 closed. So I was having to race around and I had to start my physical therapy about 10 days late because of that. And so, you know, I'm starting to freak out a little bit. I'm like, because 10 days at the start of a rehab process can mean weeks, months later on. So it, it was a really, really stressful side, but I was lucky enough to, you know, knock on wood me and my family stayed healthy the whole time. Um, been relatively lucky as far as, you know, health goes and everything. So I just spent the whole time basically kind of just in rehab mode, nonstop, just rehab training and finishing up school. So, um, Tate, you know, as we talk about, you know, your your injuries and the rehab that you've gone through throughout your entire journey and your career, before we get into that, you know, we're going to backtrack into that. I just want to congratulate you on signing your first professional contract. I believe that was about a couple of weeks ago or a month mm-hmm. ago. So I want to we want to congratulate you. That is an yeah. incredible accomplishment when you sign a pro contract with baseball. I mean, that's every young boy's dream and not millions of people, millions of, of boys and adults they don't get the chance to do that. So that's unbelievable. And on top of that, considering everything that you had to go through to, to put your name on that dotted line that, you know, oh, for, for, for other people, it just may, may have been a signature for you. That must've meant something entirely different. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, thank you for that. And it absolutely meant a lot more just because of, you know, like you said, everything that's kind of happened the last few years. And I, I've had a lot of, you know, even teammates, at some points that we're just like, yo, man, you need to hang it up. You, you, it's, you know, it's just not meant for yeah. there, There's times where even I was like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, but I'm blessed with a great support system, you know, family, girlfriend, I got the right strength coaches around me. They were all able to kind of say, you know, they all gave me the same message of, look, you can work an office job for the rest of your life, play <laughs> as long as you can. you've got the talent not many people do keep going until they rip the jersey off so like I said I was fortunate and blessed with that but it certainly meant a lot a lot more to me than I think maybe it means to some other guys but uh, definitely a special day absolutely and and you know just 
for for our listeners and uh, the the people that tune into this episode, you know, we were trying to find uh, information or research you beforehand. I feel like we're going to be one of the first podcasts or like media uh, people to get the first exclusive access in the sense of what you've been through. And I'm and I'm glad yeah, you reached out. I'm really glad you reached out to us because we would like to dive more into that if, if you're okay with it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of I've been through a lot, but at the same time, like I believe that. There's always someone, there's always a ball player, even someone that's been through more than I have. So any chance you can go out there and kind of spread that message and tell people like, look, you know, whatever you're going through, everybody's been through something worse. Like, I, I don't care what it is. You can always find someone that's been through something worse. So I think that's really the best way to help, you know, other athletes, other people kind of keep going. Absolutely. There's that drive. You know, I, I just want to, I don't know if you compare the two, but, you know, when, when Peter, as a youngster, you know, Peter, he loved baseball. He was really, he was a great baseball player. And at 12 years old, he was diagnosed with a, a rare form of childhood cancer. And that was in December of 2006. And he was just 12. And I remember that whole period of time and all of that chemotherapy went through like six rounds the whole time, the only thing that was in his mind was, Dad, I got to get, I got to be, I got to be ready by spring, you know, for spring training. <laughs> I got to be back on the field. Like, we got to make sure. So I'm like, you know, Peter, you know, everything that Peter did his, you know, his chemo round, everything was like by textbook. Everything mm -hmm. was like, you know, thankfully there was no complications. And so at the end, he, he had to have a surgery, but I think one of the things that drove him was the love of baseball and that he liked that. I have to play. And I think that drove him. So I'm, you know, in a way with you throughout your, and I'd like you to go through, you know, that, that series of injuries, it seems like the love that you have for this game is so intense. It's like, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to get through this and I got to get back out on the field. Yep, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of things where if it wasn't baseball, I don't really know what I've done, what I would have turned to. And, you know, we've all seen cases where people don't have that thing to turn to and it, you know, it spirals, it goes poorly. And I think that's something that baseball can play such a huge role you know, in, in any sport, really. They can play such a huge role, in especially a young kid's life that amount that the amount of life lessons you learn by playing it, the more kids we can get playing sports, I think the better society will have as a whole right so when you on your social media pages i, I could relate in a sense because I, I wouldn't say i was on my deathbed but i was close to it you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i wanted to ask was the first injury that you had was that the life-threatening injury what happened there and how did you mm -hmm. how did you come back how did you get back on the field after that if you could give us a story it would right. be really, I mean, really it, appreciated yeah so man it, it's it was definitely my first real Injury. You know, everyone's had, oh, I had broke my wrist when I was 12, you know, but from the time baseball becomes really serious to me, I would say was, you know, junior year in high school and the recruiting starts and all that. Now, I grew up with my father was a college basketball coach for 25 years, at the division one level. Wow. And my brother played professional basketball for 12 years. So I grew up in a sports family of, you know, I'm seeing this and that. So I'm like, I want to do that. 
but I want right. to be in baseball. And I really started to take it seriously my junior year. I quit basketball. Like I was ready to go all in. And one day at practice, we were doing a drill and I was, you know, sitting there. And next thing I know, I don't really remember a lot of exactly what went into it, but next thing I know the lights go out and I kind of come to about five minutes later, I got kind of blood running down like the side of my face. And I'm like, Oh, I got hit with a ball. You know, <laughs> like, Oh, that's what happened. Oh, wow. And I go down, they take me down to the training room, my high school. Funny thing about it was I passed my concussion test on site right there. Like, you wow. know, they do the finger. What day of the week is it? You know, where are you? I was like, clear is everything. I was passing. Like, Let me get back on the mound, right? right. <laughs> I was supposed to start the next day and I was passing my concussion test. And my thought right there is, just give me an ice bag. I'll go home. I'll watch a movie. I'll relax. I'll be good tomorrow. And funny thing about it was they actually told me, you know, go home, relax, watch a movie, take it easy tonight, come back in the morning for concussion testing to clear you for a month. Like, all right, cool. No problem. Well, the blood's still kind of running down and I got the ice bag. I'm driving home because they told me to leave crack. So I'm driving home and on my way home, I'm like getting really nauseous and sick. I'm like, oh, this ain't right. So I pull over. I throw up and I'm like, that's not normal from wow. a head injury. So I'm like, I need to do a little more about that, you know, just to be on the safe side. I go to one urgent care facility and they tell me, uh, you're fine. You're, you're very clear. You're talking normal. You're okay. And I was like, well, should I see if I can get a scan or something? They're like, no, 99% you're fine. Yeah. Well, I, you know, to this day, I still, tell people it was one of the most surreal feelings I've ever had was the fact that doctor, and she was my family doctor growing up. She literally told me 99% you're fine. Wow. For some reason, I just couldn't, something in me told me like, you gotta go. So I went to the emergency room. They told me the same thing. Like, you're fine. I was like, can I just get a scan just to be certain? They're like, yeah, whatever get the scan and then they come back and tell me like, so an ambulance is on its way. We're taking you to hospital downtown. You have massive internal bleeding. Oh my gosh. So I was like, Oh, that's quite a change. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, load me up on the ambulance, go get downtown. The original plan once I arrived there was we'll take another scan every couple hours. We'll keep you for a few hours for observation. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit, you know, get the cool hospital wristband that everyone like, Oh, you know, fun story. Well, no. And then a few hours later they do the second scan and they tell me it's getting worse. We're not quite ready to do anything yet. So we're going to keep you overnight. I'm like, okay. I go to sleep, you know, tell me, all right, we'll wake you up in the middle of the night. You make sure everything's okay. Wake me up at two in the morning or so. And I'm like, oh, what? Like, you know, my name's Tate. Here's my birthday. Yeah, I'm fine. Let me go back to sleep. They're like, well, no, we're rushing you into surgery right now. The bleeding has gone so much. And my dad had just arrived. He had just gotten there. And they were kind of running through everything with us. And I remember hearing that, you know, we can wait till the morning to see, but there is a pretty good chance that you just don't wake up in the morning. 
wow. at the rate that the bleeding was going. Right. So I was like, okay, that does it. Let's go ahead and get on yeah. in there. You know, that was that. And then I woke up the next morning with half my head, you know, shaved off and this side of my face is a lot bigger than this one. But so what happened was they went in and found fractured skull right there. You know, I got long hair now, so you can't see the scar. Oh, that I show you, but nasty scar runs from about there all the way up down to the back of the ear. So it was a fractured skull and internal bleeding. I believe it's called a hematoma was the medical right term. Right. That's kind of what happened from there. And then I spent the next few days just trying to figure out what exactly is going on. It started with, you know, for lucky, you know, cause the left front size, the left frontal lobe, they told me that's what controls your motor functions. Right. Oh boy. That's the worst spot for me to, to get hit for something to go wrong. So, it's so you're thinking, Tate, you're thinking at that moment, like motor function, what are you saying? Like, is it right. possible that I'm not going to be able to pitch or play ball or my, you know, my coordination is going to be screwed up? Yeah, that I mean, was you're my... not even thinking about your life, right? I got to play ball, man. I was <laughs> the same way. Like, I, I related baseball. <laughs> I, I related completely to the story about you because I was like, yeah, that's, Exactly what I was thinking. It wasn't about baseball. Meanwhile, my doctor is thinking, I hope you're not, you know, in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. And I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, well, look, I, I got a game in two weeks. I, <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll sit out for a couple of weeks. If there's anything separate yeah. there, just try right. to connect it. Yeah. Just like, let's go, because I, yeah, we'll, I got a game. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> be we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Like, look, I've already missed one game. Let's get yeah. back to the next one. <laughs> so that, it started with, you know, can you feel this when they're touching my hand, you know, touching my toes, things like that. And I'm like, yeah. And then I remember my dad one day brought to the hospital, he brought a tennis ball. And one day when there was no one around, I was like, Hey, can you do me a favor? He's like, what? I'm like, can you just throw me the tennis ball? I want to see if I can catch it. Like, right. That was like a big thing. And obviously they weren't, if the doctors or nurses saw it, they were, Oh, everything was going to break loose. Like do not throw anything at him right now. <laughs> And so he tossed it to me and I was able to catch it, both hands perfectly fine. Once I had that, I was like, oh, we're fine. We're you good. felt, yeah, you felt relieved. Mm -hmm. So, right. I was like, oh, okay. I, you know, I still got it. I didn't have to, you know, think about, it. I can't imagine what I would have done if I would have just completely whiffed on it yeah. and missed. That would have been, you know, disaster. But luckily, I mean, I was able to do that. And then I remember having a conversation with my surgeon about, I was like, hey, so this is in April. I was like, you know, my recruiting summer is right now. So we got till June. And he was like, I don't know about that. He was, you know, telling me, and to his credit, he never once told me you shouldn't be playing. He was great. He told me, like, look, I'm not here to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. It's your life. He goes, but if you're going to play, you have to wear something to protect right, your head. that area. And his first recommendation was, I'll just pitch with a batting helmet on. And I remember <laughs> I told my dad, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not pitching with a batting helmet on. <laughs> I was like, under no circumstances, that going to happen? I was like, I'm not doing it. So my dad was great about, it. he reached out to a, I don't even know where he found him, 
there was a few different companies that had started to begin producing pitchers protective headwear that goes in the hat. And I believe one of them almost went to market with MLB teams. It's basically just an oversized hat that had the padding in. Well, they sent me one and I was like, no, this thing's like five pounds on my head. I'm not going to pitch with this. Luckily we were able to find a company that just made about this big. They're made of Kevlar and they're just portable inserts that go in and out of your head in the little bill of your cap. And Colin McHugh from the Astros, he wears it actually. You can still see a little kind of indentation in his hat where there's something in there. So they sent it to me and that's really kind of what allowed me to play again. And, you know, I got used to it, but I still wear them to this day. I'll never pitch a day as a hitter without those in. Wow. Unbelievable. That's just, I got, I got the chills, man. I got the goosebumps, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. I mean, you go from wait for, you go from not knowing if you're going to wake up the next morning, you know, like a, some, that's a gift that everyone takes for granted, unfortunately, you know, and you go mm-hmm. from waking from not knowing if you're going to wake up the next morning to, Hey, you know, get the tennis ball. Let me see if this works <laughs> out. And then like in a couple months, right. In a couple months and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, soon I'm, I'm getting back on the mound. So that's unbelievable. So what, yeah. what actually happened, you know, after that time, so you go through the rehab, you, mm-hmm. you know, you get back on track. Were you able to get back onto the field in a, in a considerable amount of time or did it take a long time for you to get back on the field? So I had my surgery on April 10th was the day it happened. And I was able to play my first weekend of summer recruiting in June. I mean, it was like mid June. Oh, and I was able, I, I pitched, my first game back in a tournament at the university of Oklahoma. And that was a big deal for me because I pitched and, you know, Oklahoma has the big video board with the miles per hour on there. Mm-hmm. And I pitched first pitch. I threw, I immediately snapped back and looked, I saw it was 88 and I was like, wow. Okay. I was like, All right. <laughs> Unbelievable. So you uh, were already, yeah. I'm sorry, you were already in college at that point. This is my junior year of high school. Oh, high school. I'm sorry, so, junior year of mm-hmm. high school. So now as you're going into your senior year, right, mm-hmm. you're pretty much, by September, you are already, like, in the groove to, you know, start trying to get recruited, so to speak. What was the college or university? Where were you thinking of that you wanted to go at that time? And were you concerned about... <sighs> You know, getting recruited at a, you know, at a, at a baseball program, were you concerned at the time that coaches might like, you know, you have to reveal an injury like that? And are, are they going to look at you like, oh, you know, I think he's a little bit of damaged goods. How did that situation, how did you approach it? And what was the situation at the time? That definitely was a huge part in it. And the summer between junior and senior year was kind of where – 90% of the recruiting, at least to the, you know, the bigger marquee schools, that's where it happens. And, you know, I try to tell this exact story to as many kids as I can. Going into that summer, early that spring, I had just mailboxes full of SEC, ACC, Big 12, you name it. Wow. Like, can't wait to see a pitch this summer, man. Like, let's get you on campus for a visit. And it's like, as soon as that happened, a lot of it just went dark, which I understood. I was like, I, I get it. They probably just want to see if I can play again. 
what really frustrated me was that summer I went out and I played very well. I played, you know, really well at the Atlanta uh, perfect game tournament. It was national championship. I went six innings, one earned run and like 11 strikeouts or something against a nationally ranked team with, you could name the college world series field that year. They were all in the crowd that day with their polos on. So I was thinking, and I, my summer coach at the time, uh, Randy Brown with Marucci elite, he came up to me after the game and he was like, Anyway, you're going to have your pick of anywhere you want to go. I was like, oh, I'm feeling really good. You know, this is awesome. Didn't get a single call, text, yeah. nothing. Oh. And it was a really weird recruiting situation because, like you said, a lot of them were a little, you know, kind of hesitant, scared of it. But what happened was some, a lot of the mid-major schools and the smaller Division One schools they would go to these games or they would talk to my coaches. They would see, well, who else is looking at him? Who else is involved? And they would see an SEC school, an ACC school, and they'd say, oh, we're just not going to waste our time. Then that's where he's going. Well, they know I had you know, zero offers at the time. Like I would have loved to have that. But right. so it went from here, then nothing here. So I was like, okay. So I ended that summer with nothing. And you know, I went to the world championship in Jupiter, Florida with the Houston Heat and I pitched really well there. And I was lucky enough for Navarro Junior College where I ended up going. They saw me there that day and they called me in the middle of I was setting up a visit to uh, to BYU and they called me and they're like, look, full ride we want you bad. And the message they gave to me was something that really resonated was you've gotten passed over for a lot of the wrong reasons. Right. This is a chance to kind of almost hit the reset button and kind of revive what I thought I had, you know, really missed out on. So went and took my visit, fell in love with it and everything they had done there and committed on the spot and signed my letter of intent there in November. And, I tell people all the time, the funnest year I've ever had a baseball was the spring of my senior year because I was already committed, signed. I was able to just play. That's unbelievable. Who, who, who are some of the driving forces when you went to Navarro who were kind of advertising this opportunity? Like, look, this is a clean slate. Like, let's get to work and put your past behind you. So our head coach there was uh, Matt Pajanski. So shout out to Pudge, as we all call him. He's He's a legend there. We love him. And so Brock Holt and Chris Davis of the MLB, they both went to Navarro um, among a bunch of other guys. But th- there we had a coach, an assistant coach named Pops. And Brock Holt did a big feature story on this last year, actually, where Pops is a legend in the Navarro program, been around forever, has all the great stories about everybody. And, you know, I met him and I was like, that that's a special guy right there. I was like, you know, I – that's a good guy. The main thing to me at that point became I've been through the recruiting process where it's, Oh, we have the nicest weight room. We have the best indoor cages. Like at that point I was just searching for something where I was like, all right, can I, you know, really trust these people to kind of put my career in their hands, you know, to handle this correctly. And, you know, I, I come to it with a different background with a lot of guys. I mentioned my dad's coaching background. So I grew up around it. Like, 
my dad always jokes me because you're the first coach's kid who's been so hard to coach. And it's just because I, I'm the guy that questions everything, not in a bad way of, you don't know what you're talking about, but in a way of, well, why are we doing it this way? Well, couldn't this way be better? You know? <laughs> so take that really interesting point that you make because, you know, some guests that we've had on here, you know, they mention a lot of times, sometimes the perceived abilities that they have about themselves is a lower is a, at a lower level than what the reality may be. And it, it sometimes takes that one coach or that one person to recognize like what you're about and to see through all of that uh, stuff that other people are talking about and, and digging down a little bit deeper that can make a difference in your life and really change the, 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 the trajectory of, of where you're going to go. And so it, it seems like that coach at Navarro was, was pivotal because he recognized something that other people were just, were missing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of where the bread and butter is in junior college baseball. Really. I think that's where you go get a lot of guys, you know, like I'm a dime a dozen in junior college guys that feel like, man, you know, I, I just wish I had another shot at this thing. I feel like there's still more in the tank or there's a lot of guys. I was one of them that took a little longer physically to mature. I think you'll find a lot of coaches like that in junior college, but I always tell people, man, that the Juco experience will make a man out of you that that grows you up real quick. And I give, you know, all the credit for everything to, Navarro because uh, the thing about junior college is everyone can't wait in a sense to get to that next school, the division one school where you think it's all like, Oh, this is where, you know, you're going to have it made. Well, meanwhile, once you're around at that next school, all the junior college guys will stick together and say, man, I miss the old Juco days, you know, like everything was so simple. It was just about getting better as a player and the teams were so close, but I, I learned so much about myself in those two years there that I really wouldn't trade how that recruiting process played out for anything. Take growing up. So, I mean, your, your father's a renowned coach. You have another brother who's, you know, a professional athlete. And so I'm assuming growing up, number one, you're probably very athletic. You're probably introduced to a few sports, basketball and baseball. And so at some point you gravitate towards baseball and you gravitate towards pitching. Did the throwing come, was that something that came more naturally to you? And I'm just curious to know why out of all the potential sports that you could have, you could have chosen and, and excelled in probably, mm-hmm. you know, what was it about the baseball and what was it about your, your, how you felt about your own DNA that drew you to that, to be a pitcher. Right. And yeah, the funny story about that is, is I actually, when I first started playing, you know, sports competitively at like six or seven, I think I was a, stud basketball player just I I was you know the best in the whole league and all this stuff and my first little league tryout I really didn't even want to go my dad (laughs) he he was like no you need to play baseball it's good for you I was like I don't want to go I had like 
I went to the Little League trout. I had like strep throat. I was sick. It was cold. <laughs> I couldn't catch a single fly ball. I couldn't throw properly. And <laughs> my mom, after the tryout, she told my dad, she was like, she like put on her stern voice. She was like, you need to make him a better baseball player. Like he's going to, he's going to be a baseball player. And she, I think she was just so secondhand embarrassed of how bad her son was at baseball. <laughs> so I, I started off as an awful baseball player. And then as I kind of got older, the table started to turn a little bit and I was like, Oh, this baseball thing's pretty fun. Well, then you know, I kind of got more and more serious with things and, you know, I was able to go to, we moved and I went to Lake Travis High School in Austin, which is just an athletic, you know, factory, home of Baker Mayfield. And sports are a little different there. It was kind of, you had an overlap of seasons to where it was really tough to play basketball and baseball because basketball's going and you're missing the first month of baseball. Right. I did that my freshman year and I broke my leg in basketball. <laughs> And then I tried to come back to baseball and it's, Hey man, we're already three weeks into the season, you know, like we got our starting lineup set. So that was a really tough season. So I was like, I'm better at baseball. I think I've got a shot to be better at baseball and I just like it more. That's kind of where that came. And the decision, I, every pitcher hangs on to the idea that we can hit for so long. For so long. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> I thought I was, I was like, no, I, I can be a two-way player in college. I can do it. Well, once I started facing fastballs that were above like 84, I was just getting my hands blown off. I was like, this isn't fun anymore. You know, it's not, it's not a little league. So I kind of gravitated more towards pitching. What I loved about pitching from the very start was it's one of the few positions in sports where you're in complete control of the game. Right. You're out yeah. there alone on the mound nothing's happening until you throw that pitch right. and kind of your whole team is kind of depending on you that day in a sense and I don't know I really love the idea of I'm kind of out here a little bit and kind of my own show like I loved that idea and you can be kind of the ultimate alpha competitor in pitching that's really tough to do I think in some other aspects. You can't do it as much in basketball. Football, the quarterback's probably the only position, but I don't know. I love that the whole spotlight was on you in pitching, I guess. Tater, you're you're a right-handed pitcher, correct? Unfortunately, yes. You're a right-handed batter, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Growing up with different sports, is your dominant side right and did you ever toy with your non-dominant side? I'm just curious. I, I definitely tried because my dad's left-handed, my brother's left-handed, and my sister, of all people, is also left-handed. Wow. And I got the right-handed gene from my mom. So I was like the one person who actually could have used this and benefited from it <laughs> in baseball as a pitcher doesn't get the left-handed gene. <laughs> oh, my so, God. <laughs> Well, you know, it's really funny because if your dad was a baseball coach, right, mm -hmm. I'll bet any amount of money he would have forced you to hit, uh, taught you at the beginning to hit left. And we so, tried. Right? <laughs> I have this funny feeling that because he was a, 
he was a basketball coach and his his focus was really not on the baseball thing. He like let you, you know, he let you be, so to speak. Well, we, we went we went through a trial and error of that because, well, so my dad was a basketball coach, but he also played baseball in college at Iowa State and he was drafted by the Twins. So and he was a pitcher. So, you know, he knew a lot about baseball. Long story short, there's countless home videos of him trying to get me to throw left-handed really? and hit left-handed. I just wouldn't do it. I They would pan the ball in my left hand and I'd be like, grab it out of the right and throw it with my right. So I, I, I asked the same question a million times as I got older. And one day they just broke out the tape and like, look, we tried. I was like, oh, <laughs> it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Well, you know, part of our underlying theme here is is about – you know, neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. right? where we feel that a lot of h- the highest or higher level athletes are very ambidextrous. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're either born that way or, or, you know, they're born once with a dominant side and by some fluke, they're, they're taught to work their non-dominant side. And so it's very interesting though. So when you are, you know, are in the hospital where, you know, you have this brain surgery and worried about, you know, whether you're able to even walk again, never mind throw. Very interesting how, you know, I'm sure your neurosurgeon probably mentioned to you at some point that the brain is is very adaptive. And so if, if some part of it is damaged, another part will take over. That's the whole mm-hmm. part about the neuroplasticity. So what is utilized sometimes in rehab you know, you know, we, we feel that sometimes can be utilized in a sports specific way. So if you work on your non-dominant side, you're opening up pathways that you haven't utilized and sort of creating better communication between the brain and the body, so to speak. So I was just, I was just curious about that, given that it's interesting that your father was a lefty lefty, and it's like, you know, um, yeah, we tried. I I just, you know, if I go back and do it again, I would, I would make myself do it, but for some reason, a version of me just really wanted to make life harder on myself as a right-handed pitcher. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tate, while we're talking about your parents, at this point, when you try to leave the house, do they just hold you down and try to wrap you in duct tape so (laughs) nothing can happen to you? So, uh, every time, you know, I talk to my dad, it's, so the last couple of years, I've really kicked it up in terms of, you know, training, you know, just hard, hardcore, living in the weight room, eating right, getting after it. And I'm working with my guy down here, Derek Sosa, who's, he's got me completely right. And I always, you know, will send him videos of, hey, dad, check this out, deadlifted 600 pounds today or jumped this box jump today. And he's always like, God, you know, be careful, be careful. Like, you know, so yeah, they, they definitely are like, oh, just stay healthy, just stay healthy. But no, it's been a, a fun kind of road to navigate. Is there anything you do with like stretching more so than like other players, just because that's always sort of in the back of your head. Like I need to stay on the field. Like I know how much it sucks to not be able to play. Like this is all I want to do is continue to pitch. And you know, so before, before any time right now, I've been on kind of a usual lifting schedule of lift five days a week growing before. And, you know, a lot of it building up to this point was following my throwing program from shoulder surgery. So it was that, and then going through the rehab process and 
stretching has kind of definitely become a much bigger part of what I've done. And, you know, right now I feel better physically than I ever have. And you actually hear a lot of guys, I'm sure you guys have that say that after a rehab process where it's kind of a reset for your whole body. Everything feels great. You feel strong. What I've started to incorporate a lot of lately is yoga. I've started doing probably three to four days a week of 30 to 40 minutes of yoga. And I think a lot of people think of yoga and they're like, Oh, upward, downward dog, you know, for five minutes, maybe do a plank and call a day. Like <laughs> I've started doing it where you're doing 15 minutes of breathing exercises and I'm leaving just completely just gassed, just tired. Like, Oh my God, you know, this is incredible, but you're not sore the next day. It's like, Oh, that crazy how that happens. But I've really kind of used this last year to say like, all right, I'm going all in. I've done nonstop research. I've talked to a million different people in the strength conditioning field, in the physical therapy field where, and I've kind of told them the full story. Here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm trying to get to. I'm leaving no stone unturned. I want to learn everything I can about, you know, what it takes to really be a better athlete, physically, mentally, everything. So this past year, everything that I've learned has really kind of set me up, I think, for a really good, healthy career going forward. That's hey, awesome. Yeah. We're going to have to connect you with uh, our friend, Alan Yeager, who yes. does a lot of, you know, what you're I use, about. I, I've used countless, countless things from him. You know, I've got his bands, obviously. I've used those since I was 10 years old. And I remember it was a cool moment. I was doing like physical therapy, like a month after surgery or so. They were like, okay, you know, we have these bands. I was like, hey, can, can I bring my Jaeger bands in from the car? I've got them. They're like, well, why we have these? I'm like, I'm just dying to use some baseball bands. I need to get these in here. When got them out of my car and used them. But I've used a lot of his stuff on obviously his band work, but also, you know, I've found a lot of things where a lot of the stuff has been, you know, given COVID and everything like that. A lot of this I'm throwing by myself. I'll set up a screen, carry a bucket of balls out and throw by myself and pick the balls up at the end. And I was lucky enough to stumble across a, video from talking about how to long toss indoors by yourself into a net. And I was like, Oh my God, that makes it so simple. So yeah, I've, I've used a lot of this stuff before. Yeah. So Tate, that's very interesting because so Alan Jager is a really, I mean, he starting from college, he just, you know, stumbled onto far Eastern philosophy and, and Zen and, um, that completely changed his life and, you know, about breathing and meditation, you know, the mental side. And we've interviewed Rick Peterson, who is also a, a big proponent of the mental, you know, the mental state and also is a, uh, uh, you know, an Eastern philosophy follower. So it's really interesting because you now, you know, yoga and the philosophy behind yoga is about centering, centering the body, utilizing a body posture in order to center yourself, not just from a physical level, but from a mental level as well. And I think a lot of professional players are starting to hop on you know, the yoga bandwagon, because I think before it was probably considered kind of, you know, well, that's for women and yeah. 
you know, and whatever. But I think it's, I think they're understanding it from that, that centering kind of thing. And, you know, in, 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 in sports where you have, you know, like you're a pitcher. So over time, your musculature, your, your skeletal muscular system becomes um, becomes warped because you're you're only utilizing one side, and so you need to go back with your trainer in order to adjust and and get to your core and try to balance all of that stuff out. And and the problem is is that the gains that you make with your strength and conditioning coach gets negated again when you create your sports specific practice, and so. Right what you need to do is always, you know, always try and balance. And then yoga is obviously a great way to help you center that. And, um, you know, there are other ways to do, uh, to, 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 to center yourself in, in a sports specific way. But I, I would assume that's once you get into that, it's not just about the physical, it becomes a whole mental and physical, because I think you need to connect those two. If you try to just do the mental without the physical, I don't know that you get the fullest benefit or some mm-hmm. people try to do the physical without the mental. That's where I ran into a lot of times was I would do it, but I wouldn't be really using the mental side. And I mean, honestly, I came away from some of it. Like what was the point of that? Well, when I started to really hammer down and say like, all right, you know, I'm actually going to breathe through my nose, hold it for three seconds, take my time breathing out. Eventually I found myself getting in this kind of zone mentally where I'm not thinking about anything. It's just kind of just all blank. And it was funny. I was telling someone this the other week, that little zone right there is very similar to what you'll hear guys talk about where, Oh, you had, you know, six strikeouts in the last two innings. I was just in the zone. wasn't really thinking about anything. Yeah. That, you know what? Exactly. So that's when you get into that, into that zone, into that flow state. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, Here's the thing about the flow state, because the big question is, how do we help athletes practice uh, in a way that the practice is purposeful? You're utilizing your mind and your body so that every time you throw a pitch in a bullpen session, right, every mm-hmm. thinking about every single throw that you make, right? Uh, and you're, you're doing it in a way that optimizes those, you know, brain body connections so that when you're in the game, so we're trying to make the brain more adaptive, right? Adaptive to a dynamic situation of the game that's constantly in motion and is constantly changing. So mm-hmm. once you're in there, you don't have time to think. You only have some time to react. And so part of it is how do we train the brain so that it can, I don't know if this makes sense to you. I think it will. So that you don't have to really think in the game because your brain has been trained to think faster than you can consciously think. Correct? Absolutely. Exactly. When you're in the game, you can let go and just freaking react. Right? Exactly. I I can't remember where I saw this, but I just stumbled across it the other day and it made perfect sense you've got to be comfortable living in that state mentally because the biggest moments of your career on the field are going to happen in that state mentally and 
if you're if you haven't been there before, you're gonna get there like oh god, what's going on? Like you're gonna that's where guys start to get frazzled. They start you know losing and getting rattled mentally out there. I right. think you've got to get comfortable being in that spot. Oh, I've been here, done. I've done this a million times before. While you're doing kind of your rehab process and, you know, watching film on other pitchers, was there anybody in particular that you gravitated to as guys you try to emulate in how you prepare, especially coming back from all the injuries that you've had to deal with? Ooh, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, so I've got a couple guys at the top of my list. One of them that I got to say at the very start, um, I wasn't able to fit this in the story earlier, but, after my head injury, I was able to get connected with Brandon McCarthy, who he had the same exact injury, same exact surgery in his career while he was in the major leagues. I was able to get connected with him and I was able to actually speak with him on a couple occasions. And, you know, he left me tickets at a Braves game. I was able to go see him pitch. I was able to talk with him. And, you know, he was really a big factor in, look, it's going to be okay. I'm doing it. And I'm watching him pitching the major leagues with the same scar I've got. So that meant wow. the world to me. So he was a huge part in that, you know, over just a couple of email exchanges played a huge role. And so guys, I really try to emulate. I mean, I was, I've been lucky to have him as a mentor to kind of my whole life almost was Latroy Hawkins, who he had himself a nice 20 year career in the major leagues. And I've known him since I was a little kid. And I was able to try to speak with him every couple of weeks or so. But obviously a guy like that who's done it at that level for so long, physically and mentally, he's been a huge rock for me. And he's been one of my biggest supporters. But I would say the guys that are playing now, Trevor Bauer is one of the first ones that comes to mind for me. I've loved what he's done, especially last year. I don't really, I don't know if, if you guys have seen any of it, but where he had his vlogs every week that he did throughout the season, but it gave a, an incredibly in-depth look at here's what I'm doing on this day. Here's what my throwing is. Here's what my lift is. Here's how I'm handling every day going forward this week. I remember I used to watch those all spring, all summer while I'm going through rehab. Just that was the highlight of my week is getting to see like, okay, you know, what's he doing? How's he handling this? And I was, I had a journal where I was taking notes of everything. Like, okay, I'm visualizing it. When I'm back at this time next year and I'm playing, here's what Trevor Bauer did. So here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try this out. So, um, you know, guys like him, guys like Marcus Stroman, uh, he's been a big one for me. Johnny Cueto. Those are some of the guys that I really try to model myself after and Stroman and Cueto for two different reasons is because they both do a lot of the timing mechanisms where they'll change up the quick pitch and then they'll hold. Well, I used to do that. And then I ran into a couple of coaches that, you know, made me kind of stick in the back pocket. Well, I'm really excited. I've been working on it again. It's coming back. So I'm, I'm excited to use that again at my disposal. So those guys have been big, but I would say probably, Trevor Bauer has been recently one of the biggest guys for me to kind of look at what he's doing, model and emulate myself after. That's awesome. Those are some great role models, especially growing up. You know, is there any piece of advice that Latroy Hawkins gave you over the course of, you know, him mentoring you that 
sticks with you even now as you're going into your professional baseball career? I remember, so one story he told me, I think he's told us a couple other places, but he told the story to me a long, long time ago. I think I was 12. And he told me a story about when he was facing Ken Griffey Jr. when he was a young ball player. And I think I, I got to get the story right or else he'll get on me. <laughs> but Troy was throwing fastballs to Griffey and he threw him a breaking ball or a changeup. And Griffey hit that thing out. Well, Griffey came and found LaTroy afterwards. Like, you know, why'd you throw that pitch? He was like, your fastball is good enough to get me out. You know, stick with that. That's your best pitch. That's your bread and butter. Stick with it. And so, you know, when he told me that story, I've been able to kind of just nonstop. I'll think about that in games. Like, you know, you're, you're good enough. And that's something that I think a lot of guys don't remember sometimes is that whatever level you're at, if you on the, Little League All-Star team or you're on the Major League All-Star team, you're there for a reason. Someone picked you to be on that field. You've got what it takes to be there. And I think athletes, especially at the highest levels, are so tough on themselves. They're so critical. You, even the ones that you hear of, oh, they got huge egos. They're, you know, behind closed doors, they are very critical themselves and they'll be harder on themselves than anybody. So, I think that's something a lot of guys tend to forget, and I'm guilty of it, is your stuff is good enough. You are good enough. You're there for a reason. That's really interesting, Tate, because actually this morning I was listening to a podcast that Joey Votto was on, and he, he was mentioning, he was talking about the same thing. Actually, you know, some of his his own idols that he worked with and trying to emulate certain things that they did, right? But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, you can take certain things from other people, but each athlete who are at a certain level, there are certain things that are particular to them, to their DNA, to their experience, that some things that, you know, you can, you can that inspire you, but at the end of the day, you have to figure out really what's your bread and butter. What are the things that you naturally do best? Because there are going to be things probably that you naturally do that those guys can't do. And so, you know, I, I guess there's a, there's a balance again, where how much do you experiment with certain things? Because you have to keep moving forward. You have to right. keep experimenting because if you just, I mean, there may be some, some pitches that are your bread and butter that you like, this is, this is like, this is one of my, you know, my core abilities to get strikeouts. But after a while, people figure that out. Right. Mm -hmm. And you so, always have to be adapting and you always have to be, you can't fall in love with any one thing too much because at any point, like you said, someone might figure that thing out. And all of a sudden my fastball is not beating anybody anymore. And I think the same thing applies Mentally, uh, especially in pitchers, I think you'll see some guys that before they go out and pitch, oh, they're going to down an energy drink and, you know, take a smelling salt to the nose and slap themselves in the face to go pitch. But then there's some guys that they're really calm. They, you know, they're perfectly in a good mood. Uh, there's it's like different, different psychos. I saw someone said, you know, a couple days ago, every pitcher in his own way has to be a little psychotic to be <laughs> successful. Now, there's the there's the Max Scherzer cycle where right. I'm going to grunt and talk to myself and you know yell, and there's the Zach Granke cycle where 
I'm just going to, you know, kind of stand on the back of the mound. And it's like, you'll watch Zach Ranky pitch. I love watching him. Because you're like, does he even know he's like pitching in a playoff game right now? Like he just doesn't, right. <laughs> is, there's different levels of mental, you know, preparedness that guys go through. And I think that's, you know, that's awesome to watch. What kind of psycho are you? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's funny. I used to be, I used to be the really calm, like, you know, I'm having fun. Like, you know, you've heard of the Bob Gibson stories where he just wouldn't speak to anyone on the day he pitched. I used to be the complete opposite. I was in a good mood. I'd be, you know, in the middle of a no hitter and I'd be talking to my teammates, like in the middle of the game in between innings. Well, it's weird kind of going through a really tough kind of rehab process has kind of made me a little bit more, I want to say introverted, but more like I'm okay with kind of being myself. Well, now I find myself without it. It just kind of comes. I'm the guy that is, you know, taking a smelling salt. I'm having my, you know, friend slap me in the face before I throw a bullpen. I like getting, I really kind of, with the idea of how I feel like I don't know like this is fun I, so I'm kind of evolving from one form of psycho to another so you're in the middle of a transition there <laughs> whose job has it been to slap you in the face in the past before bullpen session <laughs> uh, so I, my guy Derek shows that I'm with here and it's on uh, my Instagram actually it's on one of my stories we were doing a deadlift max uh, in the fall and he just walks right up to me and I'll slap me in the face. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. And it's on the video. You just see him just go pop, pop one on each sheet, one on the back of the neck. And then I'm just like my, I just whole start shaking and I just lift it. I'm like, Oh, that felt really good. Like, it's, I fall in love with it. It's fun to be a different kind of psycho. <laughs> so tell us the journey, a little bit of the journey so after Navarro, where did you go next? And could you just give us a little bit of a timetable of how you got now to this point where you're signing a, you know, a contract uh, with a European ball team? So it was, you know, I had two really good years at Navarro. I was fortunate enough to play in the Coastal Plains League for summer league out in uh, Columbia, South Carolina with the Blowfish. So those were two really awesome summers for different reasons where I was able to play for a former major league pitcher, John Johnson out there. The coastal plains league is kind of on tier with the Northwoods, Cape Cod, that kind of level where you're playing in a double play type atmosphere every night where you're having six, 7,000 fans in the stands and you know, it's loud, got the beer garden and the visiting bullpen. They're getting on you. So I was able for the first time really to play in those kind of environments. And that was really, that kind of helped me grow a lot as a pitcher. So I went to Texas A&M Corpus Christi after that a division one, the Southland conference, which we had a really good team my junior year and it's baseball. We we started off hot out of the gates. We were able to beat Santa Barbara, Mississippi state. And I pitched in that game. That was that was awesome. And Oklahoma, that Oklahoma team that had Kyler Murray and that was a loaded, loaded ball club. Well, that was an interesting year for myself. I grew a lot there because after that Oklahoma series, we found ourselves ranked, I believe, 21st in the country. And we had a big feature article written about 
us and like this is the Cinderella team this year like this is who's going to upset everyone in Omaha well I'll fast forward for you we finished ninth in our conference out of 12 teams later on because it seemed like almost all at once myself included we all were playing here and you kind of overnight it's just kind of that's baseball you know we just couldn't find it again we went through a little slump we came back hot at the end but that's baseball so kind of learned a lot there because I went through that same thing myself that year I started off really hot out of the gates I was like oh this thing's easy you know and then went down again but hey quick question yeah about that because I remember when my kids played ball you know if one kid gets a hit all of a sudden the the whole team is on fire it's like a virus right and on the other end of the spectrum you know one kid two kids start making mistakes and like the entire team are like guys <laughs> so does do you think there's an i don't know I'm, i don't you know i don't know if this is a little bit out there but it's sort of like an energy that's that's infectious right if yeah. it's good it's like everybody's everybody's getting it and if it's bad everyone's getting it too do you is that something that exists like there's that team I be- energy. I, I, I do believe so. I don't know if I would have said that really before that year, but I do believe so because, you know, we the whole microcosm of that season is summed up in one memory for me and it's me and one of my best friends on the team, we found ourselves in a town called Hammond, Louisiana on a road trip in April on a Thursday night at about 3am in a Waffle House <laughs> after we just gotten our bus kicked and we were like what happened? Like we were literally just asking ourselves, like, how did this happen? You know, like what, this wasn't how it was supposed to go, but everybody goes through it kind of at the same time. And, you know, my whole team went through it at that point that year. So I, I definitely think there is something to it. And, you know, science might say something otherwise, but I don't know. I'm over in it. I've, I've seen many times go that way. So after Texas A&M, as you're you're approaching the end of your senior year, what's going on at that at that point? Well, I came back from my that was my junior year. I came back from my senior year, and in the first game of my senior season, felt a pop in my hip. Long story short, I had to get hip surgery, and I redshirted my senior year. And so, okay, you know, I'll redshirt, I'll graduate on time, and I'll grad transfer. So I ended up. You know, because of the way the whole scholarship situation worked out, they had already, you know, committed my money to someone else coming in. And with baseball only getting 11 scholarships, it's not a whole lot to play with at all. So I was kind of, it, it sucked because I really didn't want to leave. I love this place, you know, but at the same time, I was like, you know, I got to do what I got to do, you know. So I went and looked to transfer and I ended up going to Abilene Christian which is also in the Southland. And I went there and I finished my rehab process for my hip. And about two weeks after getting healthy for my hip is when uh, we were in the weight room one day and popped out my shoulder. And that was that. So in kind of a crazy turn of events, I tried to, that was in November and I tried to pitch through it. I had about six cortisone injections all around my shoulder to try to pitch. And it's just, I remember before the weekend opening series of 
COVID last year, 2020, I was throwing about 83 on fastballs. I'm like, this is not, this isn't going to get it done. Went and got surgery. And then, so the decision to not return to college for another year was one that, you know, my dad with his experience was, he was kind of like, wait, what? And the night before I was supposed to get surgery in Dallas, we were, um, me and him were going through the drive tonight in and out. And he was asking me, he was like, all right, so, you know, you know, so we're going back to ACU, you know, so we were talking about that and I was like, you know, I was like, I actually don't know. I was like, I was like, I, I think I've gotten in a weird way. I was like, I think I've gotten everything I can get out of college, out of college ball. And when I say that, I don't say that to sound like, oh, it's too good for college. It's absolutely not. That was not the case at all. But what I had kind of reached was a point where mentally, emotionally, I just I had almost kind of outgrown it in a sense where I craved the ability to kind of train myself and build myself into the player I thought, you know, that I could be. And just because of the nature of it, you don't really have that in college. You've got 20 pitchers that all have to get ready for the same thing. So I just, I really craved the ability to not rely on other people so much for my career. And he was like, you, you want to what? And like, I was able to explain to him, like, look, I'm okay with, I'm aware this is, you know, jumping out of the plane without a parachute. I'm trying to sign a professional contract after just blowing out my shoulder. You know, like I know it's not the way things usually go. 99, I would probably have said like, you know, dude, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I had kind of come to grips with that and I was okay with, look, I'm going to go one last Hail Mary. I'm going to give it everything I've got training wise, everything I've got nutrition wise. I'm going to kind of put my career in my hands for the first time ever really. There was, like, no, there was no hope of ever getting drafted, correct? No, I, because I mean, they had already made the, it was a five round draft yeah. that year and nobody's drafting a guy who is in the middle of the shoulder surgery. So I was like, look, I know how this process goes. I'm not going to get drafted. I'm going to have to go through the summer. I'm going to have to go through the fall. I'm going to have to prove, you know, that I am healthy, that I'm back. And kind of the whole bet on yourself thing. Like I was okay with that. I wanted that. I craved that. And I was kind of going on the idea that, look, there'll be someone somewhere out there, I believe, that will be willing to take a shot. And, you know, luckily I was able to really come across some really good opportunities once I was able to show that, you know, I'm back, I'm healthy. I had a couple of independent ball opportunities here in the States that came up. I had a couple in Europe that came up and, you know, it was a really interesting process kind of going through it all. But like you said, at the end of the day, when I was able to finally just put pen to paper and get that done, that really was a culmination of a lot of hours of, you know, self-doubt on my part, but also from a lot of other people. And I don't know, it really felt like kind of one of the greatest accomplishments I've ever had was that I was able to make the really hard decision to say, I'm not going to go the, you know, the textbook route, what everyone thinks. I was willing to kind of lay it on the line. And if I fail, I fail. But I had felt like the last couple of years, things had happened to me that were out of my control. Right. And that, re- that ate away at me for a long time. I was like, I just, 
I want to be in charge of right. my training, what happens. So it felt incredible this summer and this fall to do that. And I think now it's a lot easier to do for guys than it was before, just because I was able to benefit from having the internet where you can find so many things on guys training, rehab, workouts. There's no shortage of that. 20, 30 years ago, I don't think it would have worked out the same because a lot of guys are like, I don't know what to do. The only thing about that with the, you know, obviously today there's so much more information for athletes and people in general to get off the internet. But I, I think the one thing that you can find on the internet was it, it seems as though you made a decision at some point, I'm going to do this for me and not for mm -hmm. anyone else. And the minute you, you took that route and you decided what's best for you, not just what's best for you, but what's best for you for your own path that you think that you want to take. And it's not someone else is saying, Oh, you know what? Better if you try to get on an independent league and really do well. And, you know, I'm sure you got that instead of mm -hmm. like, you're going to go to Europe and you might get lost there and yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. But once you took your destiny into your own hands, that must've been a very liberating feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, a funny thing happened kind of long. I don't know whether it was the summer, the fall, whenever it was something funny happened where for the last few years or so, I had really kind of fallen out of love with faith growing up. And I, don't, I had kind of lost that. I had lost a little bit of that light, that fire that, you know, I think a lot of guys do find themselves losing because once it becomes a business and a job, it's, it's a lot tougher really to keep that kind of childhood, you know, love for it. But at some point along the way, I was able to kind of refine that. And I was watching games on TV again. I was, you know, spending all day around baseball. I was like, I was looking forward. To, I was like, this is really fun again. And I hadn't had that in so long. And I think that's something that also comes with, like you said, doing it on your terms. Like, I was going to make whatever the rest of my baseball career was going to allow me to have. I was going to do it the way I wanted to. Uh, I really couldn't be happy with how it turned and, out. And most important about that as well, Tate, is, is that at the end of the day, good, bad, or indifferent, you at this point will not have any regrets because you mm -hmm. made the decision and so, you know, the worst thing that you can do in life is have regrets. I could have, I should have, because you're some, you're, you know, you're taking <clears throat> too much consideration of, of, you know, other people's suggestions and thoughts and whatever. But when you decide, given all of the factors and you weigh all of the pros and cons and you're like, okay, there's no more what if and what if and what if and what if you can go through all the what ifs, but at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision and you got to move. And so good, mm -hmm. bad, or indifferent, you won't have any regrets because you made the best decision at this point in life. And that decision was made by you. And so I, I, I think no matter what happens at this point, you'll be able to sleep at night thinking, you know what? I did my very best. I couldn't do any more. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think kind of this last year has been something that I'll really be thankful for for a long time. Well, Tate, you know, congratulations again on signing this contract and getting your professional career started. 
what advice kind of looking back on how it all went for you would you give to players looking to take maybe the unbeaten path to professional baseball and you know what was the determining factor between not going to an independent league team and taking your career overseas you know i think we're lucky enough in baseball to be kind of the number one sport that comes to mind for stories that just like don't make any sense and guys make and I, you know my favorite one is uh evan gaddis where you know just not that long before playing in a world series he was out of baseball working as i believe a ski lift operator as a resort somewhere and like base you can go up and down a major league roster go to those guys wikipedia's and see how many of them oh you know he got cut from his division three school and then went to a junior college uh, and then signed, you know, with X team in the independent league somewhere. Like baseball's filled with stories like that. And I think that, you know, we play a weird game where guys can f- figure things out physically or mentally at any given time. It can be it. Some guys are lucky enough for it to be at 16. Some guys it takes until they're 28, 29. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is don't be afraid to do that because you never know right. when that what's going to come for you. You know, you never know. You know, I think I've had that moment now, but if I'm lucky, I'll have another one in a couple of years and I'll figure something out again. But I think that'd be my main thing is don't ever really think that, oh, because this coach told me that this is how it's going to be. I've had a million coaches that when I told them back to college that they were like, Oh, no, you think someone in pro ball is ever going to sign you? You're not going back to college? And I was like, I mean, okay, well, I, I guess we'll see. And, you know, kind of here we are. But that would be my main thing is don't ever let someone else determine your value, especially as a player. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You got me, like I said, you know, I had the goosebumps. I had the chills all throughout this interview. I mean, I, I was an inspiration to a lot of people because of what I went through with the chemotherapy, with cancer. So I was always kind of giving off that inspiration vibes. So it's nice for once to finally feel inspired by somebody else, man. So hey, same, you know, same I, thing on this side of the screen as well. It's been nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice, but seriously, man, you, the way you've been speaking about your journey and your life, man, you, you got me feeling like I got to get ready to run through a wall, man, for real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> for real. Hey, if, you, if you need to rip a smelling salt or have someone slap you in the face, <laughs> you know, go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't get a concussion. Don't surgery. <laughs> don't break your arm. Like you know. <laughs> Unreal. So why don't we um get um do some rapid fire here, Peter? Yeah. So we'll wrap we'll we'll wrap it up the interview. We'll do a rapid fire. So I'll just ask questions, and if you could try to off the top of your head, just answer as best as you can. All right. See what we All got. Right. Here we go. So who was your idol growing up? <sighs> Michael Jordan. Nice, man. Wow. Favorite baseball movie? Bull Durham. Easy one. Good. So what was your favorite TV show or, or series that you uh, watched during quarantine or binged on? I'm huge on Last Chance You. I love that show on Netflix. It shows the real, okay. the real Juco struggle, Juco grind that only a few guys can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Favorite musical artist? Two completely different ones. We're going to go either Drake or Prince on two different ends of the spectrum. Oh, man. Love them both. 
You got no soul over here. That's good. So we know you're not a hitter. You said your junior year, whether it was high school or college, you says, that's it. I'm not going to hit. I can't hit 84 miles per hour anymore. Yeah. So, but if you were to hit, if you were to hit, what would be your walk-up song? Ooh, right now, I think it'd be kind of cool to come out to Purple Rain, Prince. I think that'd be kind of either that or all along the Watchtower Bridge. Uh, favorite <laughs> venue beautiful. or city that you've played in? That I've played in Minute Maid Park. I was able to play there in uh, in a high school tournament. We won a championship there. That was awesome. Nice. So a lot of people that do tune in, we have some West Coast people, but we have more like Eastern, Northeastern people. So they may not know this, but mm. I'm going to ask you this question, and I hope I get the correct answer from you. So right. Chipotle or Freebirds? Oh, that's a trouble. <laughs> All right. So the, the East Coast people might, they might like me on this one. I'm going to go wild card and say Moe's. I don't know if you guys have ever had Moe's. Of course, Moe's, right. I'm going to go Moe's. Wow. That, 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 that's my choice on that one. All my friends from the West Coast, my college roommates or my college teammates, especially from like the Las Vegas area or, or you know, Arizona mm -hmm. or Texas, they always told me about Freebirds. So I had to ask. I had to get that question in. Moe's Chipotle Freebirds. All right. Uh, <laughs> any now or Shake Shack? I've never had Shake Shack. Uh, we don't have any of those in Texas, so I got to go <laughs> in and out. But I'm going to put Whataburger over in and out as a true Texas boy. All right. Nice. Last last food question. Do pineapples belong on pizza? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> absolutely. Everyone's like, ew. ew. Uh, they, they do. They absolutely do. Now, I've seen some things like a lot worse <laughs> than that. I've seen like candy on pizza. Like a, a, as an Italian, I get really offended that certain things people put on pizza, <laughs> but I'm allowing pineapple. There was a time we saw Tide Pods, those Tide Pods on pizza. Remember those <laughs> oh, things? Yeah, yeah. And then there was a time we saw Tide Pods on pizza. So you're right. We've seen way worse. All right, last question. Last question. So you execute a successful heist, and you walk away with $10 million. Where's the first place you go? All right. First place I'm going is I'm going to the island that I bought on a loan in a, with the anticipation that I'm going to get my $10 million and I'm going to buy an island. <laughs> wow. He's like, he's putting a deposit <laughs> down. He's putting a deposit over here, man. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Well, Tate, I don't know what banker so would give that loan out, but there we go. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for coming on and talking baseball with us. Before we let you go though, you know, where can people follow your baseball career? What's next for you? And you know, where can we find your games going forward? So anything on my, you know, my social media would be chock full of it. Um, both from Twitter and Instagram, just under my name, take Gillespie, but, uh, also what I'm planning on doing this year, as I mentioned the Trevor Bauer type vlogs he did this year, I'm talking with a couple of people. I'm planning on doing the same thing over in Europe to kind of show what, you know, European professional baseball looks like. That's a whole new market. Um, so I'm going to kind of go through a lot of my stuff. The here's the day to day. Here's my week. Here's kind of how everything's going. And I think you'll get a new little twist of that also because it's, not just going to be baseball, but it's also going to be, oh yeah, I went to, went to Amsterdam today, went to Paris today for, you know, games or anything like that. So I think it'll be fun. So I'll have those all over my social media. And then I'm the name of my team is Colarca Praha and the 
Czech extra Liga. So I uh, think we're going to be pretty good this year. So I'm excited. But, you know, if anybody wants to reach out, hit me up on social media. I'd love to talk baseball and kind of grow the game together. Baseball in Europe has been around for a lot longer than people would have thought about. I didn't even realize, but in Italy, you know, baseball has been around since right after the war. And so, and it's, it's beginning to really pick up sometimes a little slower, but it's burgeoning in Europe and in the Netherlands. And so one thing that I'm, I'm like, I'm really inspired by is that you're, you're grounded. You're grounded in who you are. Um, you're grounded in, in, in what you need to do. And I think you're going to be a great ambassador when you're in Europe and playing, not only an ambassador of this game, but in providing knowledge to the Europeans that they might not be able to get, so to speak. You're going to have a major role in playing in, in Europe. I think you're ready for it. I think, you know, sometimes what happens in our lives is for a purpose and a reason. Unfortunately, at that moment, we don't know, you know, but then again, when time, unfortunately, time has to pass in order for us to look back. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I get it now. And so, number one, we just stay healthy. Number two. (laughs) That's That's the goal. Just please, just stay healthy and stay out of trouble. <laughs> but at any rate, we wish you the very, very best in your... I need to get one of those Czech baseball jerseys. When the pro shop rolls out the Take a Lesby shirts, you need to let me know. You got to get it for sure. Yeah, we got we to gotta send <laughs> I got to you guys. We got to send one of our bats left, throws right. Absolutely. Well, Tate, thank you so much. Like, what an honor. What a real great treat to have to talk baseball with you, but talk about about your life and your all of the things that you've overcome. And if it should inspire anybody that even to, at the times when the worst things happen, it's like no matter what, when your desire, your desire can overcome that. And so you're just you're a great inspiration for for anybody. And so thank you for coming by and, and, and giving us your time. Of course, it was an awesome, awesome experience to get to talk with you guys. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's really the main goal is to be an ambassador of the game and grow the game because it's given me and so many other people so many great things that, you know, the more people we can get involved, the better. So, you know, I'd be nothing without the people that inspired me. So I'm just hoping to kind of serve the same role for everyone else behind me. Absolutely, Thank you. Look forward to keep following you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast. I've been your host, Jack Almer, along with Sal LaDuca and Peter LaDuca. We had a great time with you here today. Just as a reminder to please follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and please be sure after this interview to rate, subscribe, and review. Thank you again for tuning in.